Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Organised Crime and Animals. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. <laughs> Welcome to our panel today on uh, organized crime and animals. My name is um, Daan van Um and I'm a criminologist from Utrecht University in the Netherlands. And uh, this panel is part of a special issue edited by me and Professor Dina Siegel that will be published this month in the journal Trends in Organized Crime. And this special issue contributes to the criminological literature on organized crime, new illicit markets and green criminology. The articles offer a wide range of empirical evidence, criminological analysis, and theoretical explorations of variance connections between, on the one hand, organized crime, and on the other hand, animals, including the illegal wildlife trade, gambling on animals, puppy trafficking, the killing of wolves, and illegal unreported fisheries, and the regulatory and enforcement responses to these phenomena. And in this panel, Authors, part of the special issue, we introduce themselves and present their amazing work. So um, I'm very excited to be here today. And um, well, we, we, we will start today with a presentation from Aitor Alonso. Then we are going to continue with a presentation by, um, uh, by me. And then after that, we have a presentation of Andrea Stefanis. Um, if you have any questions, please ask them in the chat uh, so that we can see them immediately on the screen and or we are going to respond to that after each presentation or after all the presentations. Depends a little bit of our time schedule and also a little bit about the questions, of course. Well, thanks again for being with us and um, well, Aitor, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, Dan, and thanks for uh, this opportunity to be here. Uh, hi, everyone, attending this session, the very early session here in Europe. I am Aitor Ivanez Alonso. I am a master graduate uh, from Utrecht University with a thesis in the illegal trade in European eels under the supervision of uh, Dan Van Um. And right now, I am working as a research consultant at uh, C4NDAs in Washington. And at the same time, I'm looking for PhD opportunities in, in the field of uh, green criminology. Um, so the legal trade, uh, we have um, the, the, the slides, please. Yes, thank you. Yeah, can, uh, can we pass uh, the next one? Yes. So the legal trade uh, in Totoaba swim bladder uh, is a serious uh, wildlife crime that starts in, in the states of Baja California and Sonora in Mexico and then in the USA and several Asian countries, mainly uh, China. And this has become uh, a hot topic in recent years, huh? mainly after the release of the documentary of uh, National Geographic of Sea of Shadows uh, that exposed to the general public all the harms of this environmental issue, including, uh, of course, the involvement of Mexican drug cartels inside uh, the trafficking chain. And in this sense, uh, the convergence between green crimes and other serious crime uh, has also become uh, a trending issue, not only within the 
criminological studies, but also we had uh, this year various NGO reports, like the one from the, the Wildlife Justice Commissioner. So I have prepared this presentation uh, based on our latest article, as Dan said, in Trends in Organized Crime, together with the first author, uh, Israel Alvarado Martinez. So the idea is that people can understand what is going on in Mexico uh, with the infiltration of uh, drug cartels in this form of uh, wildlife trafficking, okay? So this presentation uh, will be divided uh, in two parts, basically. Uh, first, uh, I will try to answer why organized crime groups in Mexico, uh, in particular uh, Mexican drug cartels, uh, have been able to infiltrate in this illegal business. And I will do so by focusing on how uh, the different power dynamics, uh, in particular, the ones between the state and organized crime groups throughout the years, uh, we will see the evolution, uh, have influenced the shift uh, in operations of uh, these organized crime groups. I will also explore the conceptualization of organized crime in Mexico, and also present the discussion surrounding why this diversification of organized crime groups uh, into the illegal wildlife trade is taking place. So we will explore the question of, uh, is this adaptation only the result uh, of a process of risk calculation, or rather this infiltration is also embedded uh, in the social context in which organized crime uh, operates. And then in the second part, uh, I will present our empirical findings uh, in relation to the ways in which these organized crime groups adapt the Totoaba uh, swim bladder trafficking uh, by identifying the different interactions uh, between actors uh, that are found along the trafficking chain. And finally, I will wrap up the presentation with the conclusion, okay? So uh, all, the, all the data is extracted from uh, the first author, from uh, uh, Israel Alvarado Martinez, from interviews and uh, literature review, and uh, official documents of the Mexican state. Next, please. So first of all, uh, I would like to stress that we are not looking here for the typic, uh, typical factors that explain the emergence of organized crime in Mexico, uh, like uh, high levels of corruption, poverty, uh, geopolitical factors, uh, etc. So rather the point is to understand why these groups infiltrate into new illicit markets. Eh? So that's why we will focus on the evolution of organized crime phenomenon in Mexico with a special emphasis in the dynamics between the state and the Mexican organized crime groups. This is in addition to other, uh, other factors like uh, major political changes that take place in Mexico, uh, like the transition from one party state to a system of competition between different parties and how this has influenced uh, the current state of organized crime in Mexico. Here we can see how, uh, since the partial capture of the state, which is the period that goes between 1990 and 2006, organized crime groups emerged uh, from former crime structures uh, that were mainly dedicated to heroin trafficking or marijuana trafficking uh, to the US. That was the case, for instance, of the Guadalajara cartel. And then, uh, these new emerging groups uh, consolidated. So from the Guadalajara cartel, uh, uh, this was the case for instance that uh, merged the Sinaloa cartel of uh, El Chapo Guzman or the Tijuana Arellano Felix organization uh, that engaged also, we see already a process uh, 
of diversification to other serious crimes like kidnapping, robbery, or extortion. Then we see that with uh, Felipe Calderon, after 2006, the state applies a punitive strategy in the form of a war on drugs. And this leads to high levels of violence between the state and organized crime groups, but also it started internal wars uh, uh, inside these uh, drug cartels that were like uh, some sort of complex uh, uh, federal organizations uh, for the control of, of certain illicit markets. No? There's a strong competition between them. This was the case uh, of the Sinaloa cartel when El Chapo Guzman was in prison. Uh, and as a result, we can see uh, that organized crime becomes more localized, uh, polymorphous, and a small scale, more violent, of course, and thus uh, they are prone or they are likely to infiltrate in new illicit markets. Next, please. So another important issue is to consider uh, uh, the concept of organized crime. Uh, even though academics and, uh, or the United Nations try to uh, conceptualize uh, organized crime, this is a very contested and ambiguous concept and is likely to be interpreted uh, differently uh, in each country. And this can lead to, to certain factors like legal loopholes, criminal procedural law, lack of regulation, uh, different factors that facilitate uh, opportunities uh, for the infiltration of organized crime groups into new illicit markets. Uh, new illicit markets like environmental uh, markets or uh, like wildlife trafficking that were not considered as serious organized crime previously. Uh, for instance, in Mexico, uh, there is a close list, a numerous clauses uh, list uh, detailing all the activities uh, considered as organized crime. Thus, total trafficking, uh, in particular, was not considered organized crime until 2017. In addition, Mexico uh, considers organized crime as a national security issue, with all the consequences that this has in terms of militarization of the phenomenon, uh, the advent of uh, violence to these fishing areas, etc. Next, please. So when discussing why uh, organized crime groups adapt to new illicit markets, it is mostly argued that this is due to a process of risk calculation. No? Uh, there are uh, low risk of being caught, uh, high profits uh, involved. However, from this study, uh, we can see that small-scale drug traffickers uh, from the fishing towns of San Felipe and Santa Clara in, in the north of Mexico, close to the border with California, uh, these drug traffickers or these uh, small crime structures uh, that emerge after the process of decentralization and internal wars within big drug cartels from the 90s, they are shifting their operations as a result of the social context in which they are operating. They also own uh, to this process of decentralization one of the most common features, which is the high levels of violence they have because uh, they compete each other for the control of the markets. And this is consistent with uh, another case in Mexico, for instance, of the Knights Templar, a group that emerged from the Familia Michoacana and infiltrated uh, in illegal iron mining as, uh, as Fausto Carvajal Glass is. Uh, explained in a conference uh, last year, also in the uh, Organized uh, Crime 24 Hours. 
So finally, as we are going to see, this diversification is explained uh, because they can make these groups, these small scale drug traffickers, they can make use of their established routes, methods, ties uh, abroad, uh, ties with, uh, with uh, corrupt officials, alliances with other uh, criminal networks, uh, of course, the embeddedness in their legitimate business and corruption. So now we're going uh, to take a look on how these groups have actually infiltrated in the trafficking chain, in which stages uh, of the Totoaba swim bladder trafficking. So next, please. So for the second part of the presentation, I'll be looking at the different stages uh, in a simple division of stages uh, into poaching, trafficking, and retail. Why do we explore these stages? Well, because in this way, we can address better, first, the different circumstances in which actors are interconnected along the supply chain. We can see the settings, uh, different settings along the, uh, along the supply chain. And second, we can identify the ways in which these uh, drug cartels infiltrate in, into this new leasing market. Next, please. So the poaching uh, takes place in the upper Gulf of California in the area we see in the map, sorry, around the fishing towns of uh, San Felipe and Santa Clara. During the poaching state, uh, stage, uh, Totoaba moss or Totoaba swim bladders are sourced both by uh, independent local fishermen and fishermen recruited by organized crime groups. We see that local fishermen use the same fish, uh, the same trolling as they use for streams, whereas poachers use uh, large mesh uh, gill nets, they're called totaveras, they're sort of uh, screen nets they put on the bottom of the sea. Uh, the modus operandi involves launching boats from remote beaches at night uh, with small crews from uh, five to seven poachers Poachers remove the swim bladder at sea and hide them in secret compartments in the boat. In the case they are detected, uh, they show the legal permits uh, to the authorities. Next, please. But most importantly uh, is, is this pyramid we are seeing here uh, of the interaction between the different actors. Eh? First, uh, drug traffickers outsource or delegate the poaching activity to local fishermen by providing finance for equipment for boats, for nets, etc. Uh, fishermen and poachers also interact with officials and here officials disclose information in exchange of bribery, but a higher level of corruption takes place between organized crime groups and high ranking uh, corrupt officials. Um, uh, in addition, uh, violence, extortion, kidnapping are also manifested in the fishing areas among drug dealers themselves uh, because of a strong competition and against NGOs, of course, against uh, Sea Shepherd that, that uh, patrols uh, the sea, uh, and against, of course, state actors that, for instance, ask, ask uh, for too many briberies or are against corrupt uh, practices. Next, please. So after the poaching states, uh, Totoaba most are trafficked towards Asia, mainly China, uh, in many cases, uh, transiting through the US, uh, throughout the whole trafficking chain, uh, always high levels of corruption uh, are involved and violence, uh, specifically in Mexico. Within Mexico, uh, we can see that total bladders are transported uh, to a consolidation point 
uh, a narcotic retailers use uh, their established routes, like the route uh, which goes from San Felipe towards the border ma major towns uh, close to California. They may also use the same concealment, uh, concealment methods uh, as in drug trafficking, like in spare ties, inside vehicles, uh, in hidden compartments, etc. In addition, uh, they use their legitimate business to conceal the most in coolers, among other uh, fish or seafood products. Next, please. Then the Totoamos are handed over at this point to uh, ethnic Chinese middlemen. And interestingly, uh, the uh, next nodes of the trafficking chain are controlled uh, by Chinese uh, criminal networks. And the role of uh, Mexican narcotic traffickers is just a collaboration with these Asian networks. Right? At this point, the most interesting thing is that uh, the supply chain uh, is, uh, is really embedded in legitimate business like restaurants, uh, etc. Next, please. In the case of uh, trafficking across the Pacific, we can see that most of the bladders go to China via Hong Kong, but also it has been detected uh, other countries uh, like Vietnam or Japan. The trafficking is done uh, via ROC with a misdeclaration as other products or concealed among other seafood products or inside luggage uh, through mules. Uh, again, there is a strong connection with the restaurant and seafood industry and traffickers move to uh, Dolomos uh, through a network informal connection to trusted uh, end customers. However, we can also see uh, the involvement of the dark web, the social media platform, and online marketplaces as an inclusive way to connect demand and supply. Next, please. So in conclusion, uh, by examining the evolution of the organized crime phenomenon in Mexico, We've seen uh, that organized crime groups are not only attracted by high profit and low risk of being caught when infiltrated into specific stages, as we saw, of the illegal uh, wildlife trade. Uh, in fact, the infiltration takes place because these groups are embedded in the social context in which uh, they particularly operate. Therefore, its uh, diversification of the criminal portfolio is better understood as a result, as a result of, uh, of the interaction between the state on one side and organized crime groups on the other side. And in relation to the second question, to how they have infiltrated, what well, empirical findings uh, have shown that they outsource the poaching activity in exchange of providing uh, finance for equipment, for instance, for nets, for boats. Uh, they may also, uh, these uh, Mexican drug cartels outsource the smuggling activity within, um, within Mexico through mules. Uh, they also infiltrate by using their pre-existing smuggling routes of drugs, as well as the same concealment, uh, concealment methods, and by means of violence and corruption. So we can see there is a high degree of infiltration within poaching and smuggling stages within Mexico, the smuggling, activ uh, smuggling activity. But empirical data uh, shows that further stages within the supply chain, uh, the trafficking from Mexico to the US, uh, across the Pacific, is managed by Asian criminal networks. Right? So the involvement of, of Mexican drug cartels is, is, is zero. Uh, it, and in these uh, further stages of, uh, from Mexico to the US, from the US to China, is where profits may be higher as uh, uh advanced across borders. Next, please. So that was it. Uh, thank you very much for your time uh, and hope you enjoyed the presentation.
Thank you so much, uh, Aitor, for this very important, great presentation. Um, let's, uh, I see there's one question, but I suggest to keep this question um, until the end um, and to continue with the second presentation. Um, the second presentation um, is also about um, the role of organized crime in the illegal trade in wildlife. Um, but this one is not in particular about fish, but uh, rather about wildlife products um, that are being used by Chinese organized crime groups, um, or I mean used, are trafficked and, and, and uh, transferred by organized crime from China. Uh, what we see is that in recent years, uh, Chinese crime groups um, are said to be major players in more organized forms of, um, of this trade. And this particular presentation examines the involvement of Chinese organized crime groups in the trade in wildlife in the borderlands of the so-called Golden uh, Triangle. Um, that is actually the point where um, Laos, um, Myanmar, Burma, and uh, Northern Thailand, and actually also the Southern part of China meet each other. I will discuss in this um, uh, presentation, the representation of Chinese crime groups in the illegal wildlife trade by looking at A, the diversification of these crime groups into wildlife crimes, and B, the outsourcing of activities to local opportunistic crime groups in the neighboring Laos and Myanmar uh, countries. And I will conclude that different representations of the Chinese crime groups overseas involved in the illegal wildlife trade are very important in understanding the increasing role of organized crime in the illegal trade in wildlife. So what we see in the past 30 years is that China has experienced, of course, a rapid growth of global criminal markets, including gambling, human trafficking, drugs, but also wildlife smuggling, providing um, a fertile soil for criminal organizations. Um, especially Chinese growing worldwide economic and political influence also facilitates, not only facilitates legitimate activities, but also illegitimate activities by Chinese crime groups. And this enabled, um, yeah, the, actually the, en enabled by Chinese economic growth in the 90s and 2000s, we see that there is a new class of Chinese entrepreneurs of Chinese underground uh, crime networks that are looking across the borders to the Golden Triangle area in search of economic opportunities, but also political power. And they invest in major constructions, infrastructure projects, but also in trade, including illegal trade in the neighboring countries, Laos and Myanmar. And to gain access to land and local resources, some Chinese business networks some of them links to triads, have partnered with local groups, local crime groups or local armed groups that made their land available in return for share of profits that will in return strengthen their authority or what they consider their territory or their region where they're active. The presentation is based on um, empirical data from um, um, both Rebecca Wong and uh, the, 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 the second co-author and my ethnographic fieldwork and analysis of Chinese court judgments um, on wildlife traders and smugglers arrested in southern China um, and coming from Laos and Myanmar. And we collected in total 56 cases that occurred between 
2010 and 2020, wildlife smugglers arrested um, in China. And based on these um, uh, judgments, we see that 80% of the judgments were from smuggling cases that occurred from Myanmar into China, while around 20% were from Laos into China. And in addition to understand in a better way the qualitative perspective, uh, the contextualization of the region, field work has been conducted um, across Laos, Myanmar, China, and Northern Thailand between 2011 and 2019. Can I have the first sheet, please, of the presentation? Okay. Um, so. What we see here on the figure on the right, um, this illustrates actually um, the, um, the fieldwork re region. Um, so we see here important hubs, uh, places where fieldwork uh, took place, um, all um, in this particular area of, um, of the Golden Triangle. So we see on the left, we see Myanmar, on the right, Laos, below Thailand, and up we see China. Next sheet, please. So to understand how those organized crime groups diversify into new markets, um, this figure illustrates uh, with the, back, the, big, the big arrow on the left that it points to the diversification of organized crime group X. X. They, they, they're going from this um, group, enters a new market. Um, market um, uh, on the right in the circle and they outsource different um, illegal activities to localized crime groups A, B and C as illustrated by the three small arrows on the right. For example, a crime group involved in the trade in tiger skins, they may outsource the tasks of poaching, product promotion or product delivery to local crime groups. Next sheet. So what we see is that the empirical results show that uh, diversification takes place in several different um, crime groups. For example, illustrated by a legal judgment um, of 2019, we see that two Chinese offenders worked in collaboration with two others in Myanmar to smuggle illegal commodities into China. They checked into a hotel where they paid a Chinese crime group to smuggle nine tiger skins into China that evening. And having done so, they returned the next day and were asked to smuggle a bag of weapons and drugs into China, which reflects, of course, crime convergence. And indeed, two informants in the border area of uh, Myanmar and China, we see, for example, in villages such as uh, Daluo, Mongla and Kiangtong, that uh, young adults are driving back and forth on their motorcycles via shortcuts in the forest between China and Myanmar. And they complained that their friends have been arrested for drug smuggling. And some of those smugglers have now become active in trading elephant skins, ivory, pangolin skills, and beer products, mainly for traditional Chinese medicine. Other informants explained also that smuggling wildlife products became actually hot products on the market because of a relatively high um, value, but also because um, high repressive um, um, activities by the local governments or by local militia groups that are in place there, which makes it more attractive to become involved in illegal trading wildlife. Um, 
And this is also reflected by a, a, a conversation with uh, two tiger traders. Um, they explained how traders in Mongla invested their money made from the opium trade into wildlife businesses. So they actually diversify from, in this case, drugs into wildlife trafficking um, uh, because of um, economic um, and political, but also social reasons. And um, the diplomatic relations in such areas may help such organized crime groups a lot with smuggling wildlife across the border. And this can be traced back to political ties between local governments, militia groups, and also crime groups that are all the time interacting with each other, facilitating structures to smuggle uh, wildlife across specific routes or make uh, specific smuggling activities actually um, immune for reactions of the local governments. Um, but also that uh, drug um, uh, groups are being uh, used by wildlife tra tra traffickers to smuggle it across the borders because of more priorities on specific forms of uh, wildlife trade. For example, in Bhutan, uh, the border of Laos with China, we see that illegal trade in rhino horn parts has become more um, difficult for local traffickers. Um, and the difficulties surrounding the rhino horn trade provided actually opportunities for diversification, according to um, imported wildlife traders in town. So you see the drug trafficking networks um, are used to smuggle larger scales of uh, wildlife trade nowadays. And this connection with drug trafficking was also illustrated by legal judgments, where we see that crime groups involved in smuggling rhino horn and ivory across the border, that we see that, for example, the logistics company that was being used for this specific case, that they were also being connected to the trade in methamphetamine. And this shows altogether how socioeconomic, political, but also ecological circumstances may affect diversification in, um, um, in the, the borderlands of the Golden Triangle. In addition, we see that Chinese organized crime groups that diversified into wildlife trade in uh, Laos and in Myanmar um, established new relationships with local entrepreneurs. So informants explained that ethnic Chinese locals often develop relationships with those new crime groups members established in place in order to foster exchange and collaboration. Um, and this is seen in relation to, for example, as we've also seen with the case of the Tatuaba with the poaching. So also our empirical data shows that even though many wildlife poachers cannot be directly defined as members of organized crime groups, poaching is being outsourced. Um, as some groups of poachers are being hired by Chinese crime groups. And poachers in Xi'an state in, in, in Myanmar or, or in Laos explain that groups of poachers are paid in advance, provided with poaching equipment, and gradually establish a more powerful position in the local political economy. And even though the link to organized crime groups is not always clear in the legal judgments, we see that in some cases, um, a very high level of organization is behind it, which indicates, of course, more organized networks. For example, one case from 2015 shows how three perpetrators smuggled wildlife uh, worth um, a lot of um, uh, US dollars, around 100,000 100, US dollars. 
and that the wild that was purchased by in Myanmar and was approved by one Chinese defendant who used uh, WeChat videos to teach smugglers how to distinguish specific species. Um, so from that point of view, the Chinese defendant made bank transfers to smugglers who then paid the Burmese poachers through an intermediary. But if you look at the, the, the structures based on the information uh, with, um, with uh, people directly involved in the illegal trade, based on interviews with them, we see that those structures are actually most of, a lot of them are well organized and paid in advance, arranged in advance with many people involved simultaneously. So in relation to outsourcing, I think it is um, important to keep in mind that we can see here new criminal careers because local opportunistic crime groups that were first, for example, being um, um, employed by Chinese organized crime groups to do the poaching job or to do the uh, smuggling groups are growing. So they establish their own, actually their own organized crime group or their own criminal group. And after a while, um, you see that those, uh, those individuals may have a network of, of collaborators with them and um, establish their own agreement with own, um, own power, with their own power and own economic, uh, um, uh, economic uh, decisions to be made. So to conclude, um, this presentation illustrates actually the different representations of Chinese organized crime groups involved in wildlife trade in, 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 in abroad, so overseas, in the borderlands of Golden Triangle. And our data in particular shows that the diversification of Chinese crime groups into the illegal wildlife trade in Laos and Myanmar has been influenced by socioeconomic but also political changes. So improved trading conditions and infrastructures as well as social relationships between criminal entrepreneurs established, for example, in China already before the emergence of those Chinese organized crime groups. Um, for example, they, they, they went there because of, the, um, um, because of op economic opportunities to establish small-scale businesses and then can be facilitators in the illegal trade in wildlife after a while by um, establishing new social relationships. Um, but also that um, the economic opportunities um, that are provided by the diversification are also facilitated by cross-border trafficking um, of other contraband infrastructures, as we've seen with the case of uh, Laos into, uh, into China. The Golden Triangle, where our empirical research took place, is of course also known for the embeddedness of drugs, in particular opium and methamphetamine, in the local political economy. So therefore, um, actors involved in illegal wildlife trade in this specific region are regularly associated to other crimes, in particular drugs, where uh, drugs lines are used or uh, where combined shipments take place. And some criminal entrepreneurs also invested um, in, um, um, in, in, in casinos in the border areas. And this also facilitated lucrative illegal wildlife trade deals alongside drug trafficking and prostitution in the areas around casinos, but also illegal wildlife trade in some of the casinos in the Golden uh, Triangle um, area. Another example of diversification that we mentioned is uh, that highly professional smuggling gangs 
have become involved in both drugs and wildlife smuggling. The drug smuggling groups added wildlife trafficking into their criminal portfolio and used their drug smuggling infrastructure to diversify due to, for example, repressive drug policies or the rising value of wildlife trade. Keep in mind that an, uh, a rhino horn um, can, um, can, can be sold on the black market for several thousands of euros, sometimes 30 to 40 thousand um, US dollar or euro even. Another example of diversification is when powerful people use their drug trafficking profits to invest in illegal wildlife trade. So some of um, the cases also illustrates that actually the money coming from that was being used to invest in illegal wildlife trade was made out of um, drug trafficking in the region. And in addition, our empirical, finally, our empirical results show also the importance of knowledge, risk calculation and criminal careers in the context of outsourcing illegal activities to local crime groups. Our research shows how organized crime groups operate in the local setting and collaborate with local crime groups. So they are socially embedded in new networks that result in new crime uh, groups, fluid networks. And multiple examples illustrate how Chinese crime groups pay local poachers in both money and equipment, because local poachers have the hunting skills to find high-valued wildlife species in the middle of the jungle, um, but also um, in relation to outsourcing of smuggling, where wildlife trade to, is smuggled by local smuggling entrepreneurs. Um, can be uh, low-level low smugglers, for example, the guys on the motorcycles uh, crossing the border into China that I mentioned at the border point of Daluo and Mongla, but it can also be with the help of uh, diplomatic immunity with um, government cars are being used um, or backed up by militia groups that are in place in specific areas along the border of China. Um, however, oftentimes local entrepreneurs only receive a fraction of the profits. If we see in the judgments, the, um, the amount being paid to the smuggling networks, for example, is only a small part of the real profits that in the end are being made by the networks. Um, so further research um, into how these networks are socially embedded and how they revolve issues of risks and trust is really important for improving our understanding of diversification and outsourcing. But at least our study reflects um, well how you have to understand the local perception of those crime groups, the local representation to understand the diversification of organized crime um, in the past, now, but also in the near future. That was my last uh, point and my last slide. So thank you so much. Um, now we move on uh, to our final presentation, which will be more uh, focused on the reactions actually to organized crime forms involved in uh, wildlife trade, but in particular uh, in relation to fisheries. Andrea, the floor is yours. Thank you, Thank you Dan. Uh, could someone please uh, show the, yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, thank you. It is an honor to present uh, at 
this channel together with with Dan and uh, Aitor. Uh, I learned a lot from from uh, both presentations uh, today. Uh, my name is Andrea Albesepanus. I was a PhD candidate at the Utrecht University, and I'm currently working with the Indonesian uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, dealing with transnational uh, organized uh, crime issues. I will base my presentation on my article uh, titled uh, "Fisher Business Regulatory and Enforcement Challenges uh, of." Transnational Organized IEU Fishing Crimes. It was uh, published in Trans in Organized Crime June this year. Uh, uh, this article was written by me and uh, John Propala. John is a professor. Then I will deliver my presentation also on behalf of uh, John. Uh, next slide, please. The main uh, question of the article is how can the criminalization of IE fishing, especially when committed by OCGs, organized criminal groups uh, under suppression conventions, tackle the deficits of regulation and enforcement at the international and national levels? We argue that uh, suppression conventions at global and regional levels could serve as solutions to supplement the deficits. In explaining the argument, uh, first we examine the phenomenon of adaptation and its uh, TOC dimensions, and also the significant harms caused by adaptation, patients of international and national research instruments to establish the deficit. And then we elaborate why suppression conventions are the suitable solutions to the deficits. And lastly, we analyze how suppression convention can be regulated uh, both at global and regional levels in, in a way that they tackle the deficits. Uh, These steps will be explained in the following uh, slides. Next slide, please. It, it was estimated that IE fishing uh, accounts for 11 to 26 million tons of fish each year. And this condition has been escalating for the past 20 years. The U.S. Coast Guard estimates that one in five fish caught around the world could have uh, originated from fishing. The increasing uh, trend of fishing has made the U.N. Uh, General Assembly recognize it as one of the greatest uh, threats to fish stocks and marine ecosystems. The issue of iron fishing uh, is also acknowledged by Southeast Asian countries, where they underline that iron fishing is a serious uh, concern and threatens the sustainability of the region's fisheries management and conservation uh, measures, fishery resources, and aquatic ecosystem, as well as economic viability and food security. Next slide, next slide, please. Yeah, so uh, IU fishing activities uh, have resulted in harms to the economic, social, environmental, and legal order aspects. Uh, in terms of economic harms, uh, it is estimated that globally, uh, IU fishing costs uh, 10 to 23 uh, billion uh, dollars per year. Uh, 
numerous uh, region and states also have suffered economic loss from fishing. Uh, this economic uh, loss could disrupt the development agenda, particularly when the countries are heavily dependent on the uh, sector. Uh, next slide. On the environmental harms, fishing uh, is obviously detrimental since conservation and management measures are being disregarded. The activity places a tremendous strain on the already depleted stocks and seriously affects the efforts to rebuild them. Iofishing uh, also has detrimental impacts on the marine ecosystem. The depletion of fish stocks and sea creatures can impact the biodiversity and structure of the marine ecosystem. Well, uh, further, uh, those who carry out iofishing often employ destructive fishing methods, which could damage sensitive marine habitats, such as uh, coral reefs. In terms of social harms, the existence of IU fishing activities can displace legitimate fishers since IU fishing operates at lower costs, which leads to unfair competition. The lower fish catch also could disrupt the livelihood of legitimate fishermen, lead to lower employment and lower household incomes, which contributes to the increasing level of uh, poverty. Thus, iofishing is, in this sense, provoking a culture of crime and non-compliance. On the legal harms, iofishing undermines the legal order by violating fisheries laws and regulations at different levels. Uh, iofishing actors also often engage in uh, illicit collaboration with corrupt law enforcement officials to avoid the reach of applicable laws and regulations and to exploit the weak regulations and enforcement in different countries. Next slide, please. Yeah, now we are talking about IPC and TOC. The TOC uh, dimension can be found through the involvement of OCGs in large-scale IPC operations. Uh, they are particularly, particularly apparent in the high-value fish products, such as uh, abalone, shark fins, sturgeon, caviar, protoaba, and European uh, eel. Uh, well, of course, uh, I thought can can uh, talk more on the protoaba and European eels. Uh, a high uh, profit margin is is uh, one of the main factors of these OCGs. For example, uh, one kilogram of raw abalone costs about forty dollars in South Africa and sells for as much as uh, almost $4,000 for retail uh, customers in Asia. Uh, studies of Totoaba trafficking in Mexico to China and also European class appeal to Asian market have also shown the indication of OCG's involvement in the trafficking of the two species. In Southeast Asia uh, specifically, the involvement of OCGs is uh, also evident from uh, numerous cases in the region. For example, the case of the fishing vessel uh, Viking, among others, 
uh, showed how the basal operation had the characteristics uh, of OCTs. The vessel had been engaging in IOTCN activities in different uh, countries for 10 years under 12 different names and eight different flags before it was sunk by the Indonesian government in 2016. Uh, both transnational and organized crime dimensions uh, magnify the already significant harms of IOTCN and thus uh, pose major challenges for the international community. However, uh, we found that the existing international and national officers instruments have deficits in their regulatory and enforcement designs and practices, uh, as will be explained in the next, next slide. Next slide, please. Uh, our article examines five international fisheries uh, instruments, the UNCLOS, the Compliance Agreement, the UNFSA, IPOA, and the PSMA. Uh, these international fisheries instruments only provide uh, general guidelines for enforcement systems and sanctions. These instruments do not have a preference on which enforcement system should be applied by states. Thus, states have wide discretion in designing and applying their enforcement system, which can be uh, administrative, civil, or criminal. This uh, divergent national regulation and enforcement systems and practices uh, could be exploited by IOTC actors, including by operating in jurisdiction with the least punitive uh, sanctions, so their operation can continue without significant uh, barriers. Uh, further, international consensus instruments do not consider at all the TOC dimensions, particularly OCD's involvement in their provisions. Uh, they are directed uh, more towards uh, regular actors of IOPISHIN. Well, this, this is uh, understandable since the attention of OCD's involvement is relatively recent in 2008. And it was, it was not a determinant factor in the establishment of these instruments. The wide dis, uh, discretion and also the lack of TOC dimension in the international fisheries instruments are also found at the national level in different countries, including in our research in Indonesia and Vietnam. Next slide, please. Uh, yeah, so we we argue that the harms caused by, I, uh, uh, by OCGs in IU fishing are greater than those generated by regular actors of IU fishing, such as uh, fisher, regular fishermen or fishing companies. This uh, amplification of harms is argued to be a qualifying condition for the intervention of states through criminal law in protecting the environment. Uh, in this case, the use of criminal law and its sanction is more preferable than civil or administrative law uh, based on uh, four main reasons. First, the application of criminal law shows a higher uh, societal disapproval than that would be shown by civil or administrative law. Second, uh, the sanctions of criminal law can be more severe and serve as a deterrent. Third, 
criminal law authorizes the use of special investigative uh, methods, which is something that cannot be achieved by civil or administrative law. And or uh, criminal law enables the use of international cooperation mechanisms such as MLA and extradition that are generally not used by civil or administrative law. Uh, since criminalization of IU fishing conducted by OCG is argued as necessary, we suggest that such criminalization can be done through suppression conventions. So the question is, so what, what are suppression conventions? Right? Uh, next slide, please. Well, Boyster defines suppression conventions as multilateral treaties that oblige states to criminalize certain forms of conduct and to provide legal assistance to other states in order to suppress treaty crimes or treaty of international concern. In general, suppression conventions can be considered to have four main elements, substantive law, jurisdiction, investigative tools, and international cooperation. One of the main objectives of suppression convention is to criminalize certain harmful transnational conduct, in this case, IUTation. Uh, this uh, study argues that there are several common factors that can be considered in determining whether a conduct should be uh, criminalized under a suppression uh, convention, such as significant uh, harms uh, and the TOC uh, dimensions. This, these factors are common factors that can be found in numerous suppression conventions. As shown above, uh, as shown in the, in the, in the previous slides, IU fishing is causing significant harm for states and it also has clear TOC dimension. Thus, uh, we argue that IU fishing fits the criteria to be criminalized under suppression conventions. Such as criminalization can be done at global and regional level. Uh, next slide, please. At the global level, we, we propose three options. First is to criminalize IU fishing under the UNTOC, which can take the form as serious crime, and additional uh, protocol. Second is to establish a standalone suppression convention against IU fishing. And third, integrating suppression provisions into the existing international fisheries instruments. Uh, we recommend that uh, the criminalization of IU fishing at the global level is, be is, is, is best to be done through the first option, which is under uh, the UNTOC, uh, based on uh, three uh, categories, scope of application, visibility, and operationality. Uh, okay, uh, next slide, please. At the regional uh, level, uh, in this case in Southeast Asia, we propose uh, two options. Uh, first is to establish a standalone uh, regional suppression convention and to integrate suppression convention provisions into the existing regional uh, fisheries instruments. Uh, 
we uh, recommend uh, to take the first option as the as the best option. Uh, we can explore further uh, in the in the discussion why why these options are are the ones that uh, we recommend. Okay, next slide, please. Okay, now we have discussed about the criminalization at global and regional level. Uh, we, we argue that to achieve greater success, uh, regional criminalization could serve as a com complementary solution to the global uh, criminalization of education. For example, in the case of ASEAN, as all the ASEAN member states are parties to the UNTOC, in this context, the standalone regional convention could serve as a complementary solution to the UNTOC. Uh, however, it's also uh, it should also be acknowledged that there is a possibility that global criminalization cannot be realized, and that regional criminalization uh, is the only option. In this case, uh, we think that the absence of global criminalization would, would not lessen the value of regional uh, criminalization. Uh, next slide, please. Okay, uh, finally, it's, it's come to the conclusion. Well, for this uh, article, we, we come up with three conclusions. First, organized uh, criminal groups involvement in efficient is evident and could magnify the harms caused by efficient. Second, uh, there are two proposed uh, solutions, which is criminalization of aviation through suppression conventions at global and or, or this, uh, regional levels. And uh, third, uh, both global and regional criminalization would not replace or undermine the existing fisheries uh, instruments, whether uh, the global and regional criminalization would complement the existing uh, fisheries instruments. That is uh, all for my presentation. I thank you for your time and I look forward for further discussion. Thank you so much, Andrea, for this excellent presentation. Um, I suggest to look first in the chat if there are I remember there's at least one question for Aitor. Yes, I see it here. Aitor, could you please elaborate on this particular question? How are the proceeds moving? Are they using black market foreign exchange, underground banking, for example? So maybe you could tell us a bit more about the exchanges in relation to the proceeds in relation to money, how it's uh, works, for example, in the context of poachers and the relationship with uh, the Asian networks that are buying the Tatuaba um, or the poachers and between other crime groups in the area? Uh, thank you, John, for your question. Uh, we haven't concretely examined the illicit financial flows within the, this illegal, particular illegal trade of Tatuaba uh, swim bladder. Uh, the paper in trends in organized crime is more about the phenomenon of, of the uh, diversification of, of organized crime group into uh, specific stages, but uh, we have other similar cases 
uh, that suggests that uh, they use the Chinese Hawala through through one C connection, eh? meaning that uh, debts from one country uh, are compensated in another country through a network of uh, informal connections and, and informal banking system. How it works? Well, you go to a shop and you need cash, Mexican pesos or American dollars to pay it, uh, the organized group, uh, the crime groups, uh, that are behind the porters and smugglers. And subsequently, these organized crime groups pay with this cash that comes from this informal network uh, to the porters and the smugglers. For example, in Europe, uh, there was discovered in an Interpol uh, operation how Chinese networks move uh, large amounts of cash from Europe to China uh, by train through different nodes through Russia and, and Central Asia. But yeah, it would be interesting to to examine um, because, for instance, uh, in the legal trade in European glasses in the in the babies that go from uh, from Europe to to China, I discovered that some glass seals, uh, some some poachers, some uh, the network paid the the poachers with gold. Uh, where this gold came from, I, I, I saw that this gold came either from the informal network or from uh, the importers in Hong Kong uh, and China, which are embedded in large multinational companies with satellite business, not only in retail or seafood industry, which is the one that controls the, the, the international routes, uh, the, the legitimate uh, business uh, uh, supply chain, but also uh, they are embedded, they have satellite business in luxury products like jewelry or gold that, uh, that they are also embedded uh, and illicit uh, financial flows and movement of, uh, of gold. Uh, they, uh, they also have even uh, luxury tourism uh, business sector. So yeah, um, it's something that uh, it would be interesting to uh, to look at in the particular case of the Totoaba. Okay. Thank you, Aitor. Um, dear John, does this um, uh, answer your question, or do you I have an do you have an additional question? I send you in the chat uh, a link to the PDF. Uh, um, this is a case study that uh, you can download it from traffic, and it's a case study that examines uh, different ways in which uh, illicit financial flows uh, are taking place in relation to wildlife trafficking and, and forest crimes. It's, it's very interesting. I think also, Dan, you, 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 you've done something on, on this also, no? A different market. Yes, trade. maybe maybe what I can add is indeed that you mm -hmm. see that some of the networks involved in wildlife trade they use um, a very complex scheme of um, money transfer. So the money can go from one country to another country to another country to another country, and in the end arrives at the bank account of a specific uh, person involved. Um, but also, um, in particular, in relation to my uh, in our case study in the Golden Triangle. Uh, what we see is that uh, the casinos uh, facilitate also all forms of uh, money transfers, including money laundering. Um, so wildlife trade uh, deals are being made, for example, in casinos, but also some particular actors in the casinos itself can facilitate all kind of transactions. Um, and in addition to that, I, I understand from ITOR the role of uh, 
of gold. Um, indeed, it's also good to think about, well, sometimes there is not, um, there are uh, no financial economic uh, flows in terms of money, but it is based on exchange, for example, for gold or from other valuable um, uh, contrabands. It can also be an exchange between two forms of contraband um, to avoid the um, financial money system at all. Um, are there any other questions? Because I don't see at the moment in the chat other questions. So please, you could raise your hand or include a question in the chat. Can, can panelists also ask questions? <laughs> yes, of course. So, Andrea, I think, yeah. Is, uh... Go ahead. Yeah, so so interesting. Uh, from from your research, uh, Dan and Aitor, uh, what what do you think about the legislation in China and in Mexico uh, regarding the uh, organized criminal groups? Are they uh, sufficient or are they lacking? And and uh, yeah, I, I'm just wondering if if you cross uh, on on the legislation on both countries. Thank you. Yeah, uh, well, in particular in Mexico, I already uh, uh, said something about it in, uh, in the presentation. Uh, the, the thing in Mexico is uh, organized crime is only uh, listed in a numerous clauses uh, list. Uh, the different types of organized crime uh, uh, phenomenon. So we, uh, we didn't have uh, any forms of, of uh, environmental crimes, specifically wildlife trafficking, until 2017, including this list. And in terms of uh, tackling the phenomenon, in terms of combating this, if this, not, if this is not considered as organized crime, it's considered as a minor issue, uh, obviously they, they cannot combat properly. Um, and in case of China, it's it's also because this issue is uh, transnational, no? It's, uh, it goes to the US, through the US, to China, but uh, the main problem is uh, Hong Kong works as a transit hub, not only for Totoaba swim brothers, but also for lots of uh, other uh, products, not only wildlife, but uh, other finance, uh, illicit financial flows, also other uh, commodities, so uh, the issue here is uh, to see how, which framework at international level, uh, at convention, uh, conventional level, uh, might work to, to tackle this issue, right? Yeah, I fully agree um, with this. So um, in general, you see if you compare wildlife trade to other serious crimes, um, they are low priorities, they are unregulated, they are um, yeah, being considered as minor issues in a lot of uh, jurisdictions. Um, and of course, this is also one of the causes for diversification because criminal groups are aware of this. And they see in that sense, in the, in the context of law asymmetries, um, that specific regions are extremely attractive for wildlife trade, um, but also in relation to repressive policies regarding other serious crimes, it can be a, a nice new way to enter new markets. Um, 
Yeah, so basically, um, I, I indeed agree with, uh, with ITOR um, in the sense that, um, um, yeah, the criminal law dimension, um, you, you see that increasingly countries are trying to adopt it into their criminal law policies, but still in comparison to other serious crimes is uh, really underdeveloped. Thank you, thank you. Interesting. I, I will I will take a note of, of your opinions. Thanks. And uh, dear Andrea, could you please elaborate a bit further on the, the point of um, yeah, the, the, how you had had different um, um, different options actually? Uh, why in the end uh, you and John, together with John Vervale, decided to uh, recommend option one? Yes, of maybe course. we could we could return to uh, one of your last slides. Yeah, of course. You mean it's for the global uh, level? Is that correct? Indeed. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, because uh, the lack of uh, time, I, I skipped the explanation. But uh, uh, basically, we assess uh, the three options based on uh, three categories, uh, scope of application, feasibility, and operationality. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the scope of application, uh, we know that member states of the UNCOC have already agreed on the limitation under Article uh, 3, right? Uh, which uh, requires the involvement of OCDs and the element of transnationality in, in the offense. Uh, states can uh, then uh, focus on other substantive uh, aspects of IE fishing, such as uh, determining uh, which offenses uh, would be criminalized and then the jurisdictions on different uh, areas, uh, such as uh, international and uh, uh, in internal and territorial waters, the exclusive economic zones, high seas and ports, and the additional investigative uh, tools, uh, such as uh, aerial surveillance. In, in terms of feasibility, uh, the UNGOC also has the advantage uh, where states can use the existing substantive foundation and mechanism uh, rather than as starting from scratch, uh, like the other, uh, uh, like the second option. In terms of operationality, uh, the UNTOC uh, is also a better alternative since it already has the existing uh, institutional supports. In this case, uh, the UNODC, which, which uh, ideally could provide resources in terms of expertise uh, and funding. So yeah, those, those are the, the three uh, criteria. Uh, why finally we choose the first option as our uh, recommendation then. Thank you. Thank you so much for the clarification, Andrea. Um, I see that unfortunately we only have one minute left. Um, so I propose to uh, wrap up our panel of today. Okay, so all yeah. other questions, yeah. please feel free to contact, contact us. And um, yeah, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Aitor, for your great, excellent, really important presentations. 
And uh, for the audience, uh, please um, check out the new uh, special edition in Trends of Organized Crime. This month, uh, you will see more articles, but also include our articles based on the presentations of today. Well, I wish you a lovely day and um, well, goodbye, everybody. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.